The whole idea was to create or to breed a, a better Vermonter. And that version of a better Vermonter was the, the old Yankee stock. So it was a very selective look at, at who uh, was valued in the eyes of the state and who was not valued. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week, the Vermont legislature is taking up some long overdue business. 90 years ago, the legislature authorized a eugenics program that enabled the state to sterilize and institutionalize people it deemed, quote, unfit or defective. In practice, the primary targets of this campaign were indigenous people, French Canadians, and people who were mixed race, poor, or disabled. In the three decades of the Vermont Eugenics Survey, as it was called, there were 253 documented cases of sterilization, though the actual number may be far higher. The campaign of involuntary sterilization and removing children from families has had a long-lasting impact on the targeted communities, particularly Vermont's Native American people. This week, the Vermont House General and Military Affairs Committee is hearing testimony in support of a joint resolution that would formally apologize for the sterilization program. More than two dozen states had similar programs of sterilization. If the legislature passes this resolution, it's believed that Vermont would become the first state in the country to apologize. We're going to spend the hour talking about Vermont's eugenics program and its impacts today. In our first segment, we'll speak with Nancy Gallagher, an independent scholar and author of Breeding Better Vermonters, the Eugenics Project in the Green Mountain State. And we'll be joined by Amanda Goki, a reporter for Vermont Digger who is Native American and is covering this story. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Chief Don Stevens of the Nulhegan Abenaki tribe in Vermont and by State Representative John Kalaki, a co-sponsor of the resolution to apologize. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, Nancy Gallagher and Amanda Goki. Uh, Amanda, I wonder if you could we could just start. Uh, you had an article in Vermont Digger. You've been covering the issue of the apology. Give us an overview of what is going on right now in the legislature. Yeah, so right now the legislature is um, taking testimony. They're hearing from a variety of people who are descendants of uh, folks who experience the negative impacts of the eugenics survey. Um, there's a joint resolution proposing an apology from the legislature um, and acknowledging that body's role uh, in the harmful uh, eugenics movement, um, such as passing laws um, that allowed for sterilization of indigenous people, as you've mentioned, David, but also French Canadians, people who are mixed race. Um, the survey also targeted the poor and the disabled. Um, and this was something that happened. It was a coordinated effort um, led by Henry Perkins, but it required- He was uh, a professor that, at UVM of zoology. Yes. And it also required, uh, you know, a, a, an effort that spanned um, institutions, um, which, which Nancy can, can talk about in, in greater detail. Um, but there were lists uh, of, of folks who had been incarcerated. There were people who were uh, using welfare programs in the state at the time, and that information was, was shared um, in an effort to target these people who were, who were then seen as 
as less as less fit or as less uh, ideal um, Vermonters. So the whole idea was to create or to breed a, a better Vermonter. And that version of a better Vermonter was the, the old Yankee stock. So it was a very selective look at, at who uh, was valued in the eyes of the state and who was not valued. And hearings on this have just begun this week. Is that right? That's right. Hearings have just begun. Um, but this issue was in front of the legislature last session. There was widespread support, um, as there is currently, but it was tabled because of the pandemic. Um, and the legislature had also taken this up about 10 years ago. Um, and I think that the, the language has evolved pretty significantly since then. Um, so they're, they're looking at this again with, with a little bit of fresh eyes, but with um, some of the lessons that have been already learned in, in past iterations of this process. Well, let's turn to Nancy Gallagher. Uh, Nancy, um, as just noted, you're the author of the book, Breeding Better Vermonters, The Eugenics Project in the Green Mountain State. Um, I think it would be helpful uh, just to first of all explain what is eugenics? Okay, well, the eugenics, eugenics means well-born. It was coined in the 1880s by Francis Galton, Sir Francis Galton, a, a British uh, natural philosopher, I guess. And he was also considered the father of modern statistics. So it was really at his birthplace in England in the late 19th century which at a time heredity in the scientific field was, they didn't really have a theory of heredity. And um, around the turn of the century, when Mendelian genetics was rediscovered and became very popular in this country among um, biologists and so forth, the American Breeder Society, um, was developed a section called the eugenic section, which was to look at breeding better people. And in 1911, 1910, 1911, they worked, there was a nationwide committee with leaders from everything from psychologists to lawyers, to public policy people, to biologists that put together a report on cutting off the, the, the most effective way to cut off the defective germplasm in the American population. And in, this came out in 1912 and they decided that sterilization was the best way. And sterilizations had on men had actually been experimented with in Indiana and penal institutions in one of the prisons there. Can you set the context in, so Vermont passes, has a series of attempts to pass a law to authorize sterilization, uh, and it fails twice before finally passing in 1931. Can you give us the context for what was the push for sterilization in Vermont in 1931? Why then? Well, it, um, it passed both houses in 19. 12 and the new governor or the governor vetoed it in 1913. And this was part of a national movement. They found that uh, in many states that passed sterilization laws, it 
did not pass constitutional muster. So American eugenicists went back to the drawing boards and developed something they called a model sterilization law, sort of based on California's, which did pass, which was constitutional. So the state really didn't do much with, with all of that until uh, the 1920s. And there were a number of reasons for this. Um, but Henry Perkins got started teaching eugenics in around 1921 in his heredity class at UVM. And uh, in 1925, he got funding to develop something called the Eugenics Survey of Vermont. And many state universities had uh, these. Moreover, um, by this time, starting in about 1915, when they passed the first child welfare laws, they had opened institutions. One, um, Brand which became Brandon State School, was originally called the State School for Vermont's Feeble-Minded. They had um, other institutions, but they were as well. The Vermont Children's Aid Society started in after World War One. They were looking at rejections of people for the draft from the draft board from World War One, and a lot of things kind of came together, intersected, especially among social progressives of the period. Um, it was actually in 1916, they started the Vermont Charity on Conference and Correct, or, or on um, Charities and Corrections, which became the Vermont Conference of Social Work. And through that, there were a lot of people who were thinking, eugenics-minded people who were thinking very seriously about doing more with uh, eugenics policies in Vermont, either sterilizing, either sterilization or perhaps segregating in institutions, people they felt were unfit to reproduce, often I'm kind mothers. Of, I, I'm interested in not only the social dimension, but the economic dimension of this. Uh, you know, it was, they were targeting what you've called the three Ds, delinquency, dependency, and mental defect. And uh, they specifically were targeting French Canadian uh, and Native Americans. And you've written previously that French Canadians and Abenakis were seen as a foe and threat to the early colonial settlers of Vermont. So was this also an attempt to advantage white Protestant merchants and farmers from competition? Yes. <laughs> First of all, I know we've, uh, since I started my work back in the early 1990s, the Abnaki people who are now recognized by the state as Abnaki, in the 1920s, the social workers doing this survey, they were from out of state. They probably never even heard of the word Abnaki before. Um, what they saw are people that visually looked race, mixed race, Sometimes they called them mulatto or, you know, of, of African-American descent, um, mixtures like that. And they saw them as different. But moreover, the people who were probably French indigenous uh, early Vermonters who had lived there for generations, 
were in the poor relief, relief uh, records from clear back six generations ago, um, they probably were, they were a, a mixture. And some of them may have been a mixture of, of uh, Native American tribes at the time, um, you know, early in the 17th century or in the uh, 18th, 19th century, um, as well as some mixed with Dutch, some mixed with uh, British colonials and many from the French, from, from what we see as uh, Quebec now. Um, now, so you never find the word Abnaki anywhere in those records, because I don't think that the women who were doing the uh, surveys knew that word or knew what it was. But from the way their lifestyles, their life ways, their um, living off the land, not being settled, many of them, um, hunting, trapping, and that sort of thing, they were considered um, kind of outsiders in a lot of Vermont towns, not always, but often. And so as a result, you know, they were, their children were the ones starting in the early 1920s that were taken away from their parents and put in institutions. And it was from those case files that the um, first social workers started building genealogies of these children. It started with the children at the Vermont Children's Aid to rescue children from these supposedly um, incompetent or bad parents, what they just claimed were bad parents. And so they were either put out for adoption, they were given foster care, or they were put in institutions, which naturally swelled the ranks of our institutions. And they selected 15 families for special studies. And a lot of those families, not all, but a lot of those families are on the tribal rules of Abnakis today. There are many indigenous French families that are not recognized by the state as, you know, due to the politics of recognition and so forth. But that doesn't make them any less indigenous. Now, there was an infrastructure for sterilization. It required two doctors to attest that a person was, quote, defective and eligible to be sterilized. So a lot of people were involved in this. We've, we've spoken of Dr. Henry Perkins, the UVM zoology professor, but he had a lot of help in this, not to mention political support. Um, what became of these others? Uh, you know, do you have any sense of, you know, were doctors willing accomplices in this or was there any protest or pushback? Um, both. Um... It, de it would depend. Now, in some communities, well, I never had, as a scholar, I never had any access to sterilization records. And with one man who believed himself to be sterilized in the context of having an, his appendix out, we sent for all his records and there was nothing about sterilization in it, but he never had children. Um, and so to, to our knowledge, to my knowledge, I don't know. And I must also say that many of the peop people who might have been sterilized nationally have been very ashamed to even come forward and say this happened to me for obvious reasons. You know, especially with women, their womanhood at that time was having children, being a mother, and that was taken. Um, 
So, so I have not seen sterilization records. However, there are allusions in some of the reports I read among social workers of women who had been sterilized. They had been taken and put in, put in one of the institutions and coerced or said, we'll release you if you agree, consent, sign the consent form to be sterilized. Uh, in a lot of states, there are more um, cases that have come out in the open and women were um, coerced, basically, you know, with various kinds of, um, if they didn't agree, things would happen. There's been a lot of research on that. Now in Vermont, I haven't been privy to any of those people who said, this is how it happened to me. I have not been um, in contact with them. So I can't answer that. Right. The pushback, the largest pushback, if you look on our website, I had on eugenics in Vermont at UVM, I posted a whole lot of letters to the editor, to the free press during the 1931 debates. And you'll see pro and con. The Catholic church was the biggest um, pushback against eugenics in 1930-31. This seems to be, uh, you know, a very untold story in the history of Vermont. What got you interested in now when you Google eugenics in Vermont, a lot of the results point to work that you've done. You've really extensively chronicled this. How'd you get interested in this? Well, I, I knew what eugenics was being a, having, you know, a biochemistry background and um, so forth. In fact, my professor at the University of Wisconsin in um, genetics happened to be on the board of the American Eugenics Society in 19, late 1960s. So I knew what it was. What I didn't know is really how it played out historically. And it was in the late eight, uh, 1980s when I was doing bioethics projects with my students, I became acquainted with Kevin Dan, who had unearthed those records and written a couple of articles on, on those records. And also my husband, who's a historian, we did some team, some cross-disciplinary work between history and biology to, for my students. And I started taking history courses at UVM with an emphasis on history of, of science and medicine. So I had almost written on, interestingly enough, on epidemics in history. <laughs> and then when I started thinking and I realized my background in 20 years teaching in Vermont schools and seeing things that just resembled the kind of differential treatment, the discriminatory, discriminatory treatment that certain families in the communities got over other families and discipline in uh, opportunities and so forth, I said, and my interest in special education at the same time, I said, this was the one for me. This, so, and we had all, we had all the records and I found, I discovered how much I liked working with primary resources and looking at pub, public policy kinds of things. Well, we'll so link that's to your... why I decided to switch from my thesis to eugenics. And at that time, aside from Kevin Dan's articles, no one had written about it and everyone was talking about it. There were rumors that Hitler learned about eugenics in Vermont, which 
isn't true. <laughs> he learned about it from other ways. Um, but he, uh, but at, I figured, well, if I can do anything to contribute to the discussion, it's do a, an overview, sort of a biography of the eugenics survey. And that's what I did for my thesis in my book. Uh, Amanda Goki, I want to um, return to you. You have been covering this story as a reporter for Vermont Digger, but this story is also personal for you. Uh, I wonder if you could tell a little bit of your connection to the story of Native peoples in Vermont. Sure, yeah. So um, I grew up in Vermont, away from um, my Indigenous community, um, which is the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior, Lake Superior Chippewa in Wisconsin. And uh, as a student here growing up, there was really no mention of Abenaki history or contemporary presence. And it was a really isolating experience for me. And it wasn't until I went away to college that I got involved with other Native American um, students through student groups there. So basically at college, you know, I was I was starting to really educate myself um, about the history um, and these different periods, um, you know, policies of assimilation and the different forms that had taken. Um, and I later learned that my great grandfather um, had been sent to the Carlisle boarding school, which was um, created by Richard Pratt to, and its, its stated goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. So some of the same ideas about who belongs in uh, American society and who uh, counts as a full person were very much at play in that school. Where, where um, was that school? It's in Pennsylvania, it's in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, so my great-grandfather McCoons was uh, you know, sent all these many miles from the reservation. Um, all the students when they entered the school were forced to cut their hair. They have these very haunting sort of before and after pictures um, where before they're dressed in you know, their traditional clothing and afterwards they're sort of wearing the starched white shirts that um, you would imagine for the for that area era uh, of time um, and things like language were forbidden um, traditional ways were not allowed to be to be practiced so there was a very active attempt to uh, erase indigenous identities whether it was through um, means like sterilization um, as a part of the eugenics program in Vermont or through these um, reservation, excuse me, through, through boarding schools um, that took children away from their, uh, from their families um, as a really active attempt to create generational ruptures um, so that the culture and the traditions would be, would be left behind. How much did you, you grew up in Chittenden, you attended Rutland High School, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How much was being a Native American part of your identity as a kid growing up in Vermont? Yeah, so I, I felt pretty aware of the ways that I was different um, from my peers at the time and from my friends, especially. 
um, you know, Vermont's a very white state and being um, a person of mixed race, I felt that that was really something that set me apart. And as a child, um, it did feel very isolating. Um, as an adult, that's one of the reasons I've gravitated toward covering indigenous issues in the state of Vermont, because um, the impact of that invisibility is, is, I think, really can't be underestimated. I think it's a really, um, it's really important for indigenous people in the state to um, have those narratives out in the open, have them be told and, um, would you have told friends, would people, did people know that you were a Native American when you were in high school? Yeah, so I remember pretty much from the time I was really young, there's pretty much always been questions. I think that um, people in the U.S. generally um, with racial amb ambiguity, um, there's a lot of questions around that. So I've always... Um, been asked to explain who I am. I've always been asked to, um, people expect to have a clear answer. Who are you? Where are you from? And, you know, I, I would have times after I moved away from Vermont where people would ask me that question. And I could tell that the answer of Vermont didn't really satisfy what they were trying to get at. They would say, no, where are your grandparents from? You know, what is your heritage is really the question that they were trying to ask. And um, so over the years, it's just been something that's become like, very natural for me to have to negotiate and talk about it really openly. Um, what led you in college to seek out the groups of Native American students? Was it something you were ambivalent about or you were eager to do? No, I was never ambivalent. I was always very, very curious. I always had a million questions for my dad about who we are, where we come from and our family. Um, I always was really hungry for those, those stories. And um, it was hard. I think it was a learning process where I had to grow up and understand that those stories were very painful for him and brought back a lot of memories and times of his life that, um, you know, he had made the decisions in his life that he did to give us really a great life as, as kids. And it was hard from a child's perspective to, um, empathize with that always and understand it. So in college, when I finally had a chance to be in community with um, people that I identified with in that way, it was, it was definitely something I was very drawn to. And I was very eager to learn more both about the history and we would, you know, cook wild rice. And that was all very special to me um, as a part of uh leaving home and, and kind of getting that better understanding of, um, of what the history really was. You have used and others have used the term erasure. And I wonder if you could share what that means to you and what it has been like in your life and maybe the process of uh, unerasure. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge topic. Um, so I'm thinking about sort of how I can make a, like a nice bite-sized um, answer about this. I mean, it has to do, the idea of erasure, I think, is so important um, because it gets at the idea of the contemporary United States as a big blank canvas where people can arrive 
and people by people I mean European colonizers can arrive and um, and the it, it sort of absolves the colonial project of any of these dark repercussions that come with displacing entire communities and societies that have always called this place home. So that speaks a little bit to the point of, you know, when we talk about erasure, like what are we talking about? Where does that, where does that come from? Um, something really interesting um, in critical race theory is, you know, this idea that um, in Native American communities, the way race is constructed, it's constantly decreasing. So some tribes use blood quantum as a way of understanding who belongs. And that decreases each time that, you know, you have a mixed race parents, their child is considered to be less and less. So there's this idea that with each generation, you're losing that pure blood, which is a very problematic concept, of course, um, as we've seen, you know, when it plays out with, with things like eugenics, it makes it very obvious how um, problematic this can be. It's been a whole learning process for me because it's not, these are, these are big ideas and they have taken a lot of time to study and to understand um, what it means for me in, in my, in my, in my life. Um, but I hope to that through um, my work in my life, I can um, make it so that for for generations to come, they don't have to um, be ashamed of, of who they are, that being indigenous is something to be proud of and that um, subsequent generations can talk about it without, without any fear. Uh, what does this formal uh, Vermont legislative apology to Vermont's native peoples mean to you, Amanda? I think it's really important as a recognition, um, both of the harms that have been done in the past and also as a symbolic gesture that a different relationship can be created. Um, so I think it's, it's important for, for both of those reasons. And I think the conversation is an important one to be having. Well, Amanda Goki and Nancy Gallagher, I want to thank both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. Thank you. Thank you. Amanda Goki is a reporter for Vermont Digger, and Nancy Gallagher is an independent scholar and the author of Breeding Better Vermonters, the Eugenics Project in the Green Mountain State. We're continuing our discussion in this hour of the Vermont Eugenics Project, which authorized the sterilization of over 200 Vermonters, primarily Native American and French-Canadian citizens who were deemed unfit or defective. In this half hour, we're joined by Chief Don Stevens of the Nalhegan Abenaki tribe in Vermont, and later in the show, we'll hear from Representative John Kalaki, the co-sponsor of a resolution to apologize for this campaign of sterilization. Chief Don Stevens, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. We spoke in our first half hour um, with and, and heard about some of the history of the 1931 eugenics uh, campaign or uh, survey, as it was called at that time. I wanted to put a human face on what this meant 
for the native people of Vermont. Can you talk a little bit about your own family's history with the eugenics survey in Vermont? Sure. Um, my family um, was one of, uh, was very well documented in the eugenics uh, papers and survey. They were a prominent target of the, uh, the survey. Uh, they had listed from my grandmother all the way back, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five generations, back to the 1700s. So they, they did an extensive uh, amount of research on my family alone. And my grandmother was actually listed in the eugenic survey as defective and as a cripple. And uh, she had to change her name multiple times to avoid the survey. And uh, the only way they knew was uh, Harriet Abbott was uh, the, the clerk that carried out a lot of the uh, follow-ups with different towns or vital statistics. And they might see a child born with uh, the same father, but different, different mother's name. And they were like, well, did that person get a divorce and marry somebody else? Or is this the same person who changed their name? And, you know, those kind of investigative research techniques um, that most people wouldn't think about, you know, when they're trying to, uh, you know, hide from those types of investigations or intrusive investigations. So it really affected her a lot. And uh, anyway. How did she know that she was part of this survey? I don't really know how she knew. I do know that, um, I have been told that she was taken away and put into an orphanage. Uh, and actually her brother got her out of the orphanage and actually can, raised her until she was old enough to uh, get married to my grandfather. So um, I, I don't know how she knew because she never talked about that. Um, but I just know based on the papers themselves that they had been, she had been tracked, including my, her mother and, you know, her mother's father and so on and down the line. And, and uh, they tracked all the relatives all the, all the way through different states and, and the, including Vermont. So part of the eugenics campaign in Vermont was the sterilization of women I don't. I believe it was only women that they, or was it men as well? Uh, as far as I know, it was women for sure. I'm not sure about what what they did with men in the Waterbury State Hospital or the Brandon School for Boys, because uh, usually what happened is you fell into the eugenics survey if you were either um, truant, you got into trouble, or or somehow delinquent, like you asked for um, uh, social services. Then they started looking at who you were, where you live, um, you know, your ethnic makeup, and that's what triggered them to start following you uh, in the survey. And um, were were uh, Abenaki people aware that sterilization was going on, or was it something they found out later? No, they they pretty much knew word of mouth because see, we're we're family oriented people and a place based people, so. 
once they find out that maybe cousin Johnny might have been taken and all of a sudden what they did to him, uh, you know, or, or uh, you know, what might have happened, word gets around pretty quickly. So then people, you know, they, not, they don't want to identify who they are um, because, you know, you don't want to be a target of that, that program. And like, like I was saying before, that, you know, people would go to the Brandon School for Boys or St. Joe's Orphanage, or they'd go to uh, the Vermont Industrial School or the state prison, or the poor farms, depending upon where they, they best fit, right? Where, where, the, where the surveys feel, or the social services feel that they fit. Explain what your grandmother did to avoid and evade uh, the eugenics uh, survey people. Like I said, from my grandmother's standpoint, um, I, I think what she had done specifically from what I know, because like I said, my grandmother wouldn't really talk about this because uh, she, she, she was very um, ashamed of being labeled, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a, a dysfunctional person or, a, you know, defective or, or or any of those type of things. So she didn't really want to sit down and talk about that. But from, you know, what, what I know based on records is, uh, you know, the changing of her names. I have those documents showing that, that those, that her, she was, she was born as Lillian May and she got married as Pauline and died as Delia. And Delia was also her mother's name. So I think she changed her name to Delia to honor her mother, um, you know, when she had passed. So, um, so that's how I know she avoided it. And based on the records before that, when, you know, they tracked her mother and, uh, you know, her grandfather, there's pretty explicit records of following them from place to place because they, uh, they sold baskets and horses and they were, <clears throat> they would travel through Peachum and Danville and, and across the state over to New York and then up through Quebec. Uh, and they would, they would travel in these uh, family units around the state because we were nomadic from place to place. So they didn't use up all the resources and then they sold horses and baskets and other things to make a living. You know, we speak of the eugenics campaign uh, in Vermont. It's something that happened in the 1930s, but it's still present with us. Can you talk about the lasting impact of this on your community? Yeah, well, like I just testified in, at the legislative body is that um, when you have someone that has to avoid uh, detection, they, they are not willing to share any of the details around that with people. Also, you lose that cultural transfer of knowledge that, you know, her, of her life and what her, grandmother or her father or grandfather might have taught him, uh, you know, so they could pass that on to, to my mother and to me and, you know, and, and you lose that cultural transfer of knowledge <clears throat> because people don't want to, people don't want to uh, relive those, those, those times. I mean, she shared some things, but not, not, as, not what could have been shared. And I think that's the same way with a lot of people. And how it's also impacting is, uh, I mean, she died in the 90s. That's not very long ago, right? So it's pretty fresh in people's minds of their, their grandmother or something that was affected. 
and um, people are still afraid of being on a list or being on, you know, being subjected to um, scrutiny, you know, by by state agencies, right? Because they hold all the power over you. Um, they have the power to take away your children. They have the power to take away your your identity. They have, you know, they have a lot of power to uh, to have control over your life. When and how did you become aware? and more aware of your cultural history and cultural identity? Yeah, I think uh, more was when my grandmother was, um, was passing, um, she wasn't proud of who she was. So my mother would always, I'd see her cry now and then because she was called names <clears throat> and um, you know, other type of derogatory things. Um, because of her appearance of, you know, they call her squaw or call her, you know, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, and I, and I said before my, my mother died, I was going to make sure she was proud of her heritage, even though my grandmother couldn't. <clears throat> so I set out on a mission around 2003, 2004 to really get involved with the political, um, movement of trying to recognize our people. Uh, and at that time, we fought hard. And in 2006, we were recognized as a minority population. But it didn't give you any rights because we're the only people who can't self-declare, right? So in order to be an Indian, you have to be a, a citizen of a state or federally recognized tribe. So being just labeled as a minority population didn't do much, right? So then we started fighting uh, in 2011, we finally got recognized as a legal um, status Indian. Um, not that we weren't Indian before, but I mean, according to the law, we were now a, a full status uh, legal Indian, as they call it in statute. What does an apology do? I think it's a, it's a gesture of intent. It's, it's like if, you're, uh, if you do something to your spouse or your friend, I mean, it is, it is not only more morally and, and the right thing to do to be decent, you, you, you need to apologize before you can fix something or heal it. So I think uh, it's not an ending point, it's a beginning. So when there's an apology, you recognize that there's a wound and then you can heal that wound and then move forward. Um, but until you recognize it, then you're either in denial or you don't want to face, face what had happened. So I think by, by, even though it might be painful, I think by recognizing and getting an apology, I think that's a, that's a way forward. And I stated that's why I worked with UVM to get the apology in 2019. And uh, miraculously, the world didn't end. The college didn't collapse by giving the apology. So I hope that the state can feel comfortable that if UVM can do it and not suffer any consequences, then the state should be able to do the same. Can you remind us what did UVM apologize for um, at that time? Yep, they apologized for their role in carrying out the eugenics survey itself because the state created the law, the 1931 Sterilization Act, but the UVM zoology program with Henry Perkins carried out that survey, the eugenics survey. So they, they were the, the, the person who was carrying out the, uh, what the law had, uh, had stated, basically. Hmm. Uh, you 
asked the legislature in uh, the hearing that uh, just happened not to cause your extinction ever again, the extinction of Native peoples. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I said both, both physically and legally, because uh, physically, obviously, you, you don't want to sterilize our people ever again, right? That's a physical elimination or, or eliminating us from a, uh, you know, our life, right? You know, by sterilizing someone, you're eliminating someone's, someone, the future of your children. But I really wanted to emphasize the legal part of it, because, as I said, we're the only race of people who cannot self-declare. So and what, what do you mean by self-declare? Well, like, say, for instance, if you all of a sudden declare yourself as African-American, nobody has the right to question that you're not African-American, that you automatically are protected under affirmative action and other policies of non-discrimination. Same thing, like, if you say you're gay or lesbian, uh, nobody can can um, discriminate against you because of your sexual orientation, right? But if you say you're Indian, the only way that you can be an Indian is like I said, is if you are a citizen of a recognized tribe, whether it be federally or state. So if you self-declare and you're not a, a citizen of any tribe yet, your identity is not Indian. You cannot, I mean, so because the state legalized our recognition status in 2011, if for some reason they decided to take that away, we are no longer Indian. We are no longer recognized by the state because they've taken it away. So now we're legally extinct again. Hmm. So they can give recognition or take it away. And I don't want them to, we've proven ourselves, we passed their criterias, but we don't want them like if for some reason they ever got mad or upset that they could just wipe us off the face of the earth with a stroke of a pen by saying we no longer recognize them as, as a state tribe then we would be legally extinct again. Even though we're not physically extinct, we'd be legally extinct. Part of the kind of uh, American mythology is the idea that everybody's on a level playing field. Everyone has a fair shot at succeeding and prospering. Uh, you've said you're not on a level playing field. So no. explain the what you mean by that. Well, I think one, one is... Uh, I'll go back to using uh, a lot of people think of, of, of land as wealth, right? Or, or if the more, the more land you own, the more wealthy you are, because then you have more houses, you can build more things. We originally, before Europeans, all of the land that was now Vermont was stewarded by Abenaki people. Then that land was taken away from us. So we had no more land wealth, right? And a lot of people, even with farmers, they, they pass on that generational wealth from people to their kids and to their grandkids and, and it stays in the family. So they already have equity into, their, into their, their lives, right? And we don't have that, all right? We don't have that land to pass on because it was taken away. Many people live in poverty or have health disparities. So there's no programs to help us with those health disparities. Um, you know, the, like there, there are just different ways that um, when people, when you're in a state that's that's 95% white and then you declare yourself as something else, then you're already at a, at a disadvantage. You're already a minority because you were not in the majority. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's easy to be discriminated against. We've seen that happen and, and that's why there's such a social justice movement right now happening in Vermont because 
people just want to be treated fairly and be and have equity, you know, equitable, equitable voices. Part of that social and racial justice movement has been to call attention to structural racism and its impact. But a lot of people don't really understand what is meant by that term, structural racism. Um, explain what it's meant in terms of Native people. Well, I think for us, it's like implicit bias. And also, like, for instance, we've been here for eleven to 12,000 years, but there's no, rec- there's no requirement that the schools teach about the original Vermonters. They'll teach about Thanksgiving. They'll teach about the Trail of Tears, but it's always somewhere else. It's not here. And there's a rich culture of, of Abenaki people that are living in Vermont that are still here and a rich culture that is part of the fabric of Vermont, but there's no requirement to teach, teach it. There are no representatives uh, or resources for state government to call upon people. You know, this, there's no employed, employed people, full-time employed people that I know of that are in those type of roles to represent you know, native issues. Uh, they're all volunteer commissions, like it's unfunded, right? They have a Native American commission, but it's unfunded. What can they, what can you do with no funds when you can't even mail something out because you have no funds? I mean, how do you really look at the education, so, social, healthcare, and economics of a, of a complete society when it's not funded? <laughs> so those are the kind of things is that we don't have the national, um, organizations to back us in order to to create full-time positions to just work on native issues. So we do it on our own time, our volunteer time, whenever we can in between work. And, you know, so there's nobody. And as that happens, we fall further and further behind other people who do have louder voices or have representation. So people continue to make laws and other things without our voice. And then we live with the consequences of those things. So I think that's what I mean by for how it affects us structurally. A number of legislators uh, responded to you by pointing out that you were a very familiar face to them around the state house. You have been tenacious in your work on behalf of the Abenaki people for many years. Why do you do this work? And you've pointed out you have a day job, you're carving all of this out of your time where you could be earning a living. Why do you do this work? Because I want to leave this place better off for my grandchildren than I found it. I think um, if I have this talent and the skills to be able to help uplift our people, um, then I, I should do that. I would be remiss if I didn't do that. Um, I don't speak for everyone, but I fight for everyone. There's a big difference. Like I speak for only Nelhegan, but I fight for all Abenaki. You know, and I know if I, if I passed on tomorrow, helping to gain recognition for our people uh, to be legal Indians or helping to get the first land in 200 years uh, or to pass hunting and fishing rights that were part of our treaties, I can say that I'm leaving this place better than how I found it. And hopefully it's an inspiration for the next generations to pick up the mantle and move forward. And that's, that's my goal is to make a better life for our, for our children and grandchildren. An apology goes part of the way, but how do you undo the harm? What do reparations look like when it comes to Vermont's native people? Well, that's, that's the point. It's, you know, we're, we're survivors. You know, my grandmother might've been a victim, 
but were survivors of that time period because she had to change her name. She had to move around. If she was a ster- if she was sterilized, I wouldn't be here, right? So we, I look at ourselves as survivors because we're, we're not, by being survivors, we don't want people to repeat it again. And I think uh, it provides an avenue of moving forward, right? So I think, it, I think it's about how do we partner to put us on that level playing field, right? That I just keep talking about. But we can't do that. European governments and the European people have to find it necessary or important to allow that to happen because we can't do it on our own. Do you believe that um, indigenous people in Vermont are owed something more than an apology? I think the moral and decent thing to do would be to help put us on that level playing field. Uh, I think there has been wrongs done that, that could be corrected, but owing someone again is being a victim you're being a victim of and making yourself somehow less than somebody else because you've been victimized. So I would rather put it in a different frame and saying that because these things were done, it is the right thing to do. It is the moral thing to do and the decent thing to do to help correct the, the wrongs that have been done in order to uplift people as a hand up to get them to uh, a, a survivable area. It's almost like someone saying, should somebody give a minimum wage increase, right? Is it the right thing to do or is it something they have to do, right? And I, the same thing with apology, they don't have to do anything. Is it the moral and decent thing to do? Yes, that's why UVM did it because ethically it was the right thing to do. I want to bring into the conversation Representative John Kalaki from South Burlington. Um, Representative Kalaki, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Well, thank you, David. And, you know, it's an honor to be here with Chief Stevens. Um, You have been uh, a main mover of this legislation uh, to issue a formal apology to the Native people of Vermont for the eugenics survey. What got you involved in this? Well, I, I, my first interaction with the chief was in 2017. I was running the Flynn Center and we collaborated with the uh, Vermont Abenaki Artists Association and uh, Vera Longtoshian um, curated an exhibition of Abenaki work uh, in our galleries. And it was uh, quite beautiful. I didn't know any of this work. And at the opening that the chief was there, um, there was some historical photographs of people along with, with a crafts work that was done uh, and uh, older women were crying because they said, that's my grandmother. And what had happened, this lineage just had been broken. And now the Abenaki Artists Association was be- beginning to teach themselves the arts and crafts of their families. And that had been, broken. so I was like, so struck at how profound it was that this was lost and that people like Chief Stevens were making it possible. And then, of course, once I began to understand the history, there was nothing else to do but to try to move this forward. And, you know, 
Yes, this session I introduced it, but Chief Stevens and other people from the Abenaki Nation have been working for 10 years with legislators, uh, Representative Ann Donahue first introduced this resolution 10 years ago. Um, and so, so it's, we're what? building on each other's work, I would say, and it, it has iterations. And David, you, you listened to testimony today and it's gonna have more iterations as we move forward. Why does Never. it take 10 years to apologize for something that was wrong? Well, David, I, this is only my second term in the legislature. And when I saw it didn't get through last year because of COVID, because our committee had really gotten it ready to present to the floor. But on March 13th, uh, it's not an excuse. It's just when COVID hit and we were in shutdown, only COVID relief bills really moved forward. And when I realized then uh, on our break, I said to Chair Stevens, we really have to do this. And yep. this year, it's the 90th anniversary of this bill. The 90th anniversary, March 31st, 1931 is when the Vermont legislature passed this. It was the third time it was tried. In 1912, it was first passed and the governor was about to sign it. And the, um, I guess the, um, the attorney general said, no, this is unconstitutional. So the governor refused to sign the bill in 1912. And then they tried again in 19, uh, I think it was 1927. And the Senate passed the bill and the house refused to pass the bill. But in 1931, the Act for Human Betterment by Voluntary Sterilization was passed in the House. So the urgency for me is 90 years is a long time for the state to realize and recognize a, a huge mistake. You know, at that time, 20 other states, uh, 27 other states had um, enacted legislation that it was around eugenics. And it was, so Vermont was one of many that were, were quite wrong. And so the time seems now, there's an urgency for me to continue this work forward. Um, and I'm sorry it's taken this long. What and exactly, David, oh, uh, Chief Stevens? No, I was, I was gonna say, I remember helping uh, Rev Donahue actually draft the first apology and was there testifying for that as well. And the, one of the reasons why it never came out of committee was the state of Vermont was afraid of the ramifications of apologizing. It was like, if we apologize, are we somehow culpable or uh, responsible for some kind of retribution or payment or some other type of thing? And it, it really scared them and, and that's, that's why it wasn't reintroduced for so many years after that, because we knew that Vermont did not have an appetite at that time because they were so afraid that by admitting they did something that um, they would have some kind of, uh, um, there, there would be some kind of cost that something they had to do. And I just wanna, uh, you, you said, how, why did it take this long to apologize? The state has not apologized yet. It is in committee. They have not passed that apology. So, um, I, and, and I think why it has taken so long is because most of the people who were directly impacted or if, I was gonna say impacted, but affected like my grandmother has been, has been dead for a little while. And, you know, they, they just don't wanna face the people who they actually sterilized or, or the people. Now we're, we're 
you know, I'm two generations out, you know, from the, my grandmother was on the eugenic survey. My mother was not, and neither was I, but we feel with the impacts of my grandmother being on it. So I think this is the right time. Uh, like John had mentioned that um, some of those fears of retribution for apologizing or something it is maybe past us. And that's one reason why I asked UVM to do it first, because they, the state of Vermont can see that UVM, there was no impact on UVM for apologizing. They didn't owe anybody anything. They didn't, their, their college didn't collapse. So the, the state of Vermont might feel more comfortable when someone underneath them that actually carried out the physical sterilization um, could apologize then why can't somebody apologize for creating the bill? Can so, and, and, can and, you know, I, I was there at the UVM ceremony with, with Chief Stevens uh, in 2019 and in that open quadrant facing the, the Perkins building um, when the president of UVM uh, talked about the apology for its quote, unethical and regrettable eugenics role. And it was a very powerful moment. And I felt like there were a lot of people that were recognized there because today we heard a lot from the Abenaki uh, folks, but you know, Representative Donahue talks about the unmarked graves from women and children who were, who were in institutionalized and they died without names. And so there's a lot of people um, that, you know, there's a lot of hungry ghosts in, in my, my world, uh, my kind of Tibetan Buddhist construct that need to be recognized. You mentioned that many other states, I think you said 27 other states had eugenics campaigns, sterilization campaigns. Do you know if any other state has apologized? Uh, well, I know that Maine has done a, a truth and reconciliation commission. Um, and I, I don't know what other states what they've been doing. I mean, Canada has certainly done a, a great deal on this issue as well uh, with uh, you know, their First Nations people. So um, I'm not sure of other states. And this will be historic too, because as even Rep. Stevens had said, the state of Vermont has never apologized for anything, ever. This is a, this would be a first and in Vermont's history, I think of them actually apologizing for anything. I think that's what he had mentioned, but. Um, and you know, it, was, it, it wasn't just the law. What the state of Vermont did is it collaborated with the social service agencies and state agencies, and they shared confidential information about families. And with that work, families were targeted and they were separated. And this, you know, and many of the, as you heard, many people were returned after being sterilized. Or that tragic letter that was read today in the committee of, um, from the Brandon School writing to the parents saying their two children, you know, are not homesick and they're happy here, but they're, they're too, quote, retarded to be returned to them. I mean, imagine getting a letter like that about your own children. And then what? finally, when they, they didn't have children, those two kids. So were they sterilized? You know, people didn't talk about it. So we had this huge generation of, of shame, you know, um, and, families not talking about it, and also generations of people that aren't here because of it. 
Um, Representative Kalaki, can you uh, just share with us what does the apology say? And is there consideration being given to reparations, a truth commission? Um, what more is in the works? Well, in a, in a separate bill, we, we, um, we are looking at putting a task force together to set up a truth and reconciliation commission. It's, a, 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 as you can imagine, just from our conversation, that's very complex. Because what does that mean? What's the scope of this? Because, um, you know, in our resolution, we're, we're talking about that this survey, which, you know, I'll, I'll, David, I'll read what the bill said, and then I'll read our resolution, because the bill says, henceforth, it shall be the policy of the state to prevent procreation of idiots, imbeciles, feeble-minded, or insane persons when the public welfare and the welfare of the idiots, feeble-minded or insane persons likely to procreate can be improved by voluntary sterilization as herein provided. So that was the framework. But what happened is at these surveys, there were 5,000 people that were surveyed uh, in this eugenic survey and they targeted the poor you know, they targeted people who were already incarcerated and their families and they separated kids. They targeted the disabled. They targeted our Abenaki people and other indigenous people. They targeted people with disabilities. And so, you know, it, it's, it's like a very broad group of people, but it was all done in code because what Henry Perkins really wanted to do was what he called, he wanted to preserve old pioneer stock. White people. White Protestants, like his people. The French Canadians were Catholic. And so that was a problem. So, you know, it, it's a really interesting construct. And so, so all of that, we, in it, we, we, we list those names. I have it here in front of me. It's, it's a two page that, that the General Assembly sincerely apologizes and express his, its sorrow and regret to all individual Vermonters and their families and descendants who were harmed as a result of state-sanctioned eugenics policies and practices. And be it further that the General Assembly recognizes that further legislative action should be taken to address the continuing impact of state-sanctioned eugenics policies and related practices of disenfranchisement and ethnocide leading to genocide. So that's, that's where we are on this today. You know, that's, but I, we, we really see this, the truth and reconciliation as an essential part. But, you know, we have to get that right. We have to have the right people designing it. And it can't be the great white saviors uh, going to fix us. You know, because um, what Chief Stevens says, and it's true, we are all partners in this. We are equals in this. Just before leaving, I wanted to ask Chief Stevens, it is now becoming increasingly common to begin uh, events uh, with a land acknowledgement, uh, an acknowledgement that we are conducting a meeting or here on land taken from, stolen from Native peoples. But there are many different versions of these land acknowledgements. I wonder if you could just close by sharing with us what you believe is an appropriate land acknowledgement. 
What we provide people is saying we are on the land which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among indigenous people for thousands of years and is the home of the Western Abenaki people. The organization honors, recognizes, and respects these people, especially the Abenaki, as the traditional stewards of the lands and waters on which we gather today. In that spirit, today, we will begin by acknowledging that we are guests in this land. We need to respect and help protect the lands within our use. So that, that is what we provide to other people uh, who ask us for what they should do or what they should read. Uh, and it has to be meaningful. So I tell people, it doesn't do any good to acknowledge, do a land acknowledgement and then not allow us access to the land because it's kind of, uh, it's disingenuous. So, uh, you know, for me is if you're going to acknowledge that this is the land of the Abenaki people, then interact with us, find ways to partner with us, or at least give us access to the land that is in your control because it's no longer in our control. So that's, that's why, uh, it shouldn't be just words on a page. They should be sincere. And if you're going to acknowledge, it should be done with a good heart and and in the spirit of working together. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank both of you, uh, Chief Don Stevens of the Nulhegan Abenaki Tribe and Representative John Kalaki for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>